Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And in Pew Bibles, it's page 837. Jesus calls Levi. He went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. I'm a little under the weather. I woke up with a really kind of painful, scratchy throat. And so um, I'm really thankful that we only have one service today, all right? Um, but I'm happy that you're here. Uh, I was wondering who's going to be here on Mother's Day and, um, and then especially when, you know, um, the, the, the Korean-speaking congregation's out on, on picnics. But I'm, I'm really thankful that you're here. We're, you know, if you were here last week, you know this is a, a second time that we're looking at this passage. It's a deep and profound passage. Um, what, and, the, and last week we, we, we looked at this group that the, back then they called them sinners and tax collectors. And I taught you last week that today we'd probably call them something more like scum and traitors, right? And uh, just trying to really wrestle with, you know, this isn't some easy message. It's a very disturbing message that, um, that the people who look all respectable, <laughs> and have the right religious ideas, and they, they don't have any obvious, this obvious kind of like moral, um, you know, moral dirtiness, let's put it that way. Um, that's, well, who's that? Well, that's us. <laughs> that's us. A, a lot of you, you know, you've gone to good schools, and you make good money, and you have very, very respectable jobs, and you're looked up to, or at least you're seen as a good person in society. That's who the Pharisees are. <laughs> And it is exactly those people who are bothered when Jesus is having table fellowship with the folks that they all considered the worst people, the scum, the traitors of their time. And, um, and so that's what we were wrestling with last week, that this is what Jesus does. Now today, I want to um, take that a step further and, and take it into this question um, of what does church look like and because I don't know if you noticed this but this is a this is a picture of church it is it's not it doesn't talk about church this is exactly what a picture of church is church is a place where Jesus offers a table you know we we have this thing I mean you know if I was a little bit more clever we'd be doing the Lord's Supper today we literally eat a meal with Jesus and who is invited to that table um, sinners and who else comes to that table? A set of sinners who don't think that they're such bad sinners. In the Bible, we call them Pharisees. And very often, that's you and me. <laughs> that's church. That is church. And what makes church really bad <laughs> is when most everybody in the room is in that latter category, and they don't recognize that actually we're the biggest scum of all. We really are. <laughs> because the most wicked 
And the most insidious sin is the most invisible sin. <laughs> it's that of pride and of self-righteousness, the ones that make us feel like we're all cleaned up. That's actually the worst sin of all. That's what keeps people away from Jesus. Those are the people that can't get that Jesus is not just a nice teacher, he is a savior. And so we're talking about church. Now, inside of this, as you look at this passage, this is what church is. Uh, today, I really want to talk about the nature of fellowship and maybe help you rethink fellowship. Uh, mostly fellowship is a thing that Christians do when we hang out together. But um, actually, this is what we ought to do with um, our neighbors who don't know Jesus. Fellowship, isn't that interesting? Fellowship is maybe the most powerful way to do evangelism. Fellowship is the way that we should interact with sinners, okay? <laughs> Those outside who don't know Jesus right? and uh, don't know that there's a Savior for them. And so let's get into this a message that I've entitled Table Fellowship with Sinners. <laughs> Part one, dangerously cleaned up, all right? Part one, dangerously cleaned up. That's what Pharisees think of ourselves, and it's dangerous. <laughs> Part two, Grace-powered fellowship, or let's, let me, or let's put it this way, authentic gospel fellowship. Grace-powered fellowship, another way of saying that is just authentic gospel fellowship. It's just the same thing. Now, have you ever thought that when we do fellowship, that your fellowship should really be driven by grace? I'm talking about when you walk outside the church, when you're having a beer with a buddy who doesn't know Jesus, or after work or something like that. Can you have grace-powered fellowship, table fellowship? And part three, I would like us to um, close with um, a thought, some thoughts about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, that's what we're going to talk, the way we're going to close this message. Um, and maybe help you rethink this thing, this sacrament that we have called the Lord's Supper. And we'll close with a meditation on the Lord's Supper, okay? So part one, um, dangerously cleaned up. That is not my phrase. That, I'm getting that from um, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Okay, um, she's uh, one of my new favorite authors, right? And um, so, for those of you who don't know her, quick, okay, quick recap on her. If you've never heard of her, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was an English professor at Syracuse University. Um, she's a radical feminist lesbian. <laughs> she lived with her lesbian lover, and she began to study the Bible because she considered Christians the enemy. <laughs> And the Bible was a dangerous and terrible book. And so she said, I mean, she is an expert in reading. I mean, she's an English professor. She's an expert in, in hermeneutics and reading. She's incredibly good at it, okay? And um, so, you know, she decided, I'm going to study the Bible not because I'm interested in knowing about God so that I can attack the enemy on their territory. That's why she want to learn the Bible. So she put out word out there that she wanted to, um, you know, engage some people, and, and most of the Christians she ever ever encountered were people, at least these are the people that she thought were Christians, I, I don't think they're Christians, but that would have like horrible, hate-filled signs um, against gay people, right? And so those are the people, that's how she thought of Christians, but um, she got, um, she got um, a letter, or I think it was a letter from a pastor who was local in town. His name is um, uh, Ken, and his wife's name is Floyd Smith, Ken Smith. And um, they and then he invited her over for 
table fellowship for dinner. <laughs> okay, doesn't seem kind of like interesting. That's uh, not a whole lot unlike this passage. So he invited her over for dinner, and she still she says this in her first book, um, the unlikely thoughts of I mean, what was it um, the secret thoughts of the unlikely convert, right? And she says that um, when Ken prayed for that meal. Um, she said it was the first time she'd ever heard anybody pray like that before um, to a real person, a loving presence. And he prayed for her with love and gentleness. And then he didn't try to fix her. He offered a real relationship. Now, that's the backstory, And that led to a whole, it actually led to a friendship. And then she started reading the Bible. And then her, her lesbian lover starts saying, this Bible reading is changing you. She didn't just read the Bible. The way she describes it is she devoured the Bible. She read the Bible multiple times. And she started sifting the Bible. And in the Bible, she could tell that the central person is Jesus. And she started wondering, what if this is real? And then that led her toward salvation, right? And now she is one of the most remarkable <laughs> um, spokespersons for salvation in our, you know, the salvation through Jesus in our culture. She's incredibly controversial now. It's crazy. She was, an, she was very in in the university, and now the university doesn't want her to show up on campus. Uh, so when she shows up on campus, I mean, the, the, you know, all these student groups, I mean, have protest. It's crazy. I mean, it's incredible. She went from total in person in the university to a total out. And she shows up. She goes to Christian school. Christian schools. This happened at Wheaton College. She showed up at Wheaton College, which is one of the most famous Christian schools. And um, I guess they, they have a pro-gay group on the campus. And they came out and protested her right, at a Christian school. So this is, what she, so she, this is her second book called Openness Unhindered. And... Um, and she, she's a very punchy writer. Punchy is, is the right way of putting it. You read her, you can't read her, like you can't read 100 pages of Rosaria Butterfield in, in one sitting, because you're going to read 20 pages, and she has these phrases that will punch you in the head. <laughs> like, I feel like that's, that's how I feel like. She has phrases that be like, boom, it's like, whoa. It's like, wow, that was like a powerful phrase. That's how she writes. And here's how she put it. So, so she talks about her conversion. I wrote all about this in a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It is a small book. And I wrote it because as the years unfolded after my conversion, here's the way she put it, I started to look dangerously cleaned up. That's what after years after my conversion, by the way, for those of you who don't know, she ended up, not, not, you know, she ended up meeting another pastor. She's a pastor's wife <laughs> now. Okay, so she married a pastor, so she's a pastor's wife. How would you like to go to a church and find out the pastor's wife was a radical you know, lesbian feminist you know, um, before she met Jesus? And, you know, they have adopted children. Um, you know, they're, they're an amazing couple, right? Um, but, but now she looks like a normal Christian. So she calls that, I started to look dangerously cleaned up. I'm not. Well-meaning church ladies who had been raised on the right side of the Christian tracks 
and who gave themselves unearned kudos for good choices. That's a really... People who give themselves unearned kudos for good choices. In other words, all the normal Christians. <laughs> That's you and me. I read that and went, who give themselves unearned kudos for good choices. And I just stopped there. I was like, all right. That's, thanks for punching me in the head there, Rosaria. It's not just nice church ladies who give themselves unearned kudos for good choices. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? Been a Christian for any period of time. You just got to go to church for about ooh, two, three years, and then that first love for Jesus starts to wane. You know, you kind of clean up all the most obvious things and your the obvious problems. If you have like, you know, deep anger issues, or like if you had an addiction, or or you know, or or maybe you start climbing out of depression. You know, you're not maybe fully out, but you're kind of part way out. And then you, you can start settling into the nice habits of Christianity. And she calls that you giving themselves, giving ourselves kudos for unearned kudos for good choices. That's what she calls it. So these ladies, church ladies, well-meaning church ladies who grew up on the right side of the Christian tracks and gave themselves unearned kudos for good choices thought I was one of them. <laughs> In the parlance of queer culture, I passed. You guys get what that means? In other words, um, you know, gay folks obviously regularly have to get around nice, cleaned up people, and they have to be accepted by them. So how do you get accepted by them? You have to act like a cleaned up person. So she goes, now I pass. But I'm not actually one of them. I'm Mary Magdalene. I'm, you know... You guys know who she is? She's, she's the, the prostitute woman that loves Jesus, follows Jesus. I'm Rahab the harlot. She's a famous prostitute in the Old Testament, right? Followed after God's people. Left to my own devices, I am much more the whore next door than the girl next door. I'm a woman with a past. And Christ's call in my life did not lobotomize me nor did it leave me with the sentiment that Christians are better, nicer, more honest, or more, a more fun crop of cronies. We are not. <laughs> no way, at least not in my experience. Um, that's why I love this lady, Rosaria Butterfield. I, I, I actually, I sometimes wonder if I hung out with her, um, would I really, really like her, or would I find her very disturbing? <laughs> Because she might say one of these little zingers in my presence, and I'd go, oh my gosh. Um, I'm not some comfortable person that always recognized that I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm actually more of a Pharisee than I realized, because she could spot a Pharisee. She could sniff one, right? Because she didn't grow up in church. She's not like, oh, I'm so comfortable. I love being around all these cleaned up people. <laughs> She's just always reminded how people in church are just phony. And we put on our phony all the time. And when a real sinner, when a real sinner, you know, like a lesbian, shows up, well, they have to pass to show up at being in the fellowship of the church. And for her, that's not real gospel fellowship. It's just so obvious to her. 
It's not real gospel fellowship. That's just people forgetting. They think they're cleaned up, but she calls that dangerously cleaned up. <laughs> you know what that is? That's just practicing Phariseeism. Not genuine gospel grace, Christianity. Now, this is making you squirm. <laughs> oh, it's like um, I've been um, thinking all week long about, I mean, just literally, I, I, I did some stuff that, like, hurt my wife the other day that was just thinking about, like, you know, rewinding that thing about, like, how, you know, I'm practicing certain kinds of Phariseeism, right? And how I forget, you know, I'm not patient with people's um, weaknesses and, and um, forgetting. You know, we all have ways of doing this. It's like we're so backwards in this life. <laughs> and even when we come together to do fellowship, we, we, it's kind of like Jesus has to be this like cleaned up version of the way we know how to do fellowship, but the fellowship is really, it's really more of a worldly kind of fellowship with a little bit of the, some Jesus sprinkled in. Can that be the way Christian community should be? Can that really be the church? Can that really be the church? And so, um, it's just this first, this first, you know, portion. I just want to let um, the scriptures, because really the way she put it is just taking Mark chapter two and just boom, making it come to life, isn't it? The way she puts it dangerously cleaned up with people who give themselves unearned kudos for their good choices. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a very great description of Phariseeism. And um, I want us to be reminded that, you know, very often inside the church, Christians, this is us. This is us. Fighting Phariseeism is a lifelong fight. And that is a sin. It's the most dangerous sin. It's a sin that doesn't look like sin. Especially when it's just so normal in church life. But that thing that is the most normal thing in church life is very, very insidious. It's like an odorless, tasteless, you know, toxin. You know, imagine if there was like a poison in the air. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. It's like, it's like, you know, it would, it could just be completely normal, but we don't know that just like poisonous thing, gas all over the place that's going to kill us. And that's what Phariseeism is like, especially inside the church when we practice it together, like a culture. And so, brothers and sisters, let's fight it. And the fight starts inside here, right? So let's go to part two. Grace-powered fellowship or as I want to call it, authentic gospel fellowship. We tend to think that fellowship is this thing that we do amongst ourselves. That's kind of the normal way we think we do fellowship. But I think fellowship is really, in another way, it's just human beings being really human beings to each other. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have an eternal fellowship. What do they do? They give their real personhood to each other. So fellowship is actually... A tremendously, if fellowship is the thing that happens inside real community, when you get together with people and they call themselves a community and they're all fake to each other, then they're not really doing real fellowship. They're just all being fake to each other. Right? But fellowship is just what happens when people offer each other real company. 
That's what should actually happen inside a real, any kind of good community, and certainly inside of a gospel community. And what I want to um, do is say, when we encounter the sinners, <laughs> right, which is, of course, each other, but also people outside the church, um, how can we take this powerful thing that we're in, wrestling with in Mark chapter 2. And so I want to offer you three pieces of wisdom of what um, grace-powered fellowship could be like. And so normally I don't give you some hows, but I'm going to give you some hows. Right? And um, there are no, there's no tricks and hacks here. And all of them require faith. Faith and trust in the gospel. They're all gospel applications, actually, right? So first one, first one is when you meet a sinner. So what do we mean? What do I mean by sinner? A person that you go, oh, this person doesn't know Jesus. They clearly don't have any sign that they're a Christian, or even look like they're interested in Christianity. Huh? And so someone like if, we, if you had met um, Rosaria Butterfield, and you know she's she's a, a radical feminist and she's a lesbian, you'd think, okay, okay, this person's a, a sinner or on the outside of Christianity, right? So you all have people in your life that's like this. Maybe, you, maybe you're one of those people, and you're, if you're visiting us today, we're so glad you're here, okay? But you, you know, um, you're all, as Christians, you all have, if you're a Christian here, have people in your life that's here. It could be your roommate, your coworker, it could be your cousin, someone in your family even, all right? So, so first, first um, wisdom point I want to offer you, First, treat them as a whole human being. First, treat them as a whole human being. So maybe you know something about them, like um, they're an atheist. So when you like, you just know they're an atheist. So um, instead of looking at them and then like that's that's atheism, you know, like that's their problem. <laughs> that's their biggest problem. It's a pretty big problem. Okay, you know. If you don't believe in God, it's hard to like, have a relationship with God. It is a form of rebellion against God. Sure, right? And, but you can't immediately look at that and go, okay, that's your problem, and then try to deal with that as their problem. You know, if you meet somebody who's gay, and you're like, well, that's sin. Well, the Bible's clear that that's sin. And go, well, okay, that's why, that's why your life is, like, God, God, is, is, is broken. Well, that's one reason why their life may be broken, but that's not how, may, how they may feel, you know what you need to do is not instead of first treating them as a gay person or as an atheist, why don't you just treat them as a person? They're human, just like me and you. And there's some parts of our life that like is more broken than others, or we do see it, or like. So I want to offer you a, a, a quick little story. And um, a number of years ago, my wife were at the, you know in our church in in, in Philadelphia. You have, sometimes you hear me tell stories about our church in Philadelphia. There was a um, there was a man who would come to church just very infrequently, but like he came to church a couple times. This man um, wore women's pants, <laughs> wore women's pants, and sometimes wore women's makeup, and sometimes um, women's jewelry. So this guy would come to church just once in a total blue moon. And as clear as a man, I mean, it's like, it's, it's odd, like wearing a man's shirt and like having stubble on his face, but with lipstick and women's pants and actually come to church. And um, 
And thankfully, I didn't see anybody freak out <laughs> and start thinking, like, what are you doing at church? You know, this is church. And, you know, like they, you know, nobody freaked out. And, but um, at the same time, I can't say that lots of people went up and, like, showed this man much uh, welcome. It's probably just a handful of people that showed him welcome, right? And so um, I remember I met the woman in our church who actually had, you know, who had built a relationship with him. And so she ran, um, uh, she ran the thrift store. She started this ministry in our church called the thrift store, and it was down the street. And people, you know, thrift stores, um, usually people who walk into a thrift store are poor. I'm not, I don't think he was homeless, but he would sometimes call, and he would, but he was poor. When you look at him, he didn't look like so-called respectable middle class, right? And um, he looked poor. And he used to go to the thrift store, and then he developed a, a relationship with his sister in our church. And what did she do? She treated him like a person. <laughs> she talked about this. Um, she actually showed me... Um, she actually showed me this ring on her pinky that he gave her. <laughs> so she actually befriended this man, and he gave her a ring, and she, would, she actually wore it on her pinky, and she said, she, he gave me this ring. <laughs> and so she actually was glad to wear this ring given to her by this you know, semi-cross-dressing man. But he came to church. And I don't know if he got saved, but he came into the presence of Christ. <laughs> you got to hear the gospel. And I think this is what, if you ask me, what is the number one thing that all, everybody needs, whether they're Christian or not Christian, they just first need to be treated like a person. Just don't immediately go, okay, well, they're, well, they're gay, or, 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 or he's, he's, he's cross-dressing. He goes, okay, well, that must be your problem. You, you know, even know that, do you know that some people are depressed they don't immediately think, I'm depressed, this is my problem. I'm depressed, this is my problem. You know what they actually sometimes just need is, I just need somebody to hang out with. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Instead of treating me like, oh, you're depressed, how's that going? <laughs> you're depressed, how's that going? I mean, come on. <laughs> just think about that. If you have a problem inside your life, do you want to talk about that all the time? Maybe you don't even think of it as a problem in your life. I am. I actually have a friend who was. Um, he, he's a pastor in New York. I actually asked him because he mentioned that sometimes cross-dressing folks that he's met on the streets will. Some he's gotten. So I asked him, "How do you minister to those people? How do you love them?" And one of the first things he said was this. Actually, first of all, you know, you think that their cross-dressing is like a big problem in their life. They might not even consider it a problem in their life. <laughs> they might even think. You know, I just stopped caring that everybody thinks this is weird and gross. When I put on women's pants, it just makes me feel better. The real problem I have in my life is that I'm estranged from my dad. <laughs> and that really hurts. Maybe that's the real problem in their life. <laughs> or the real problem in life is like, like I'm, you know, I'm low on money. Or, or the real problem in life is like my job is making me miserable. In other words... Just normal stuff that you and I deal with all the time. So the first one, treat them like a whole human being. And I would say, this is not easy, is it? Because we look at their eyes and we, we with our eyes and we judge people. And we, we pigeonhole them. But who would ever want that? Do you want to be, do you want that happening to you? 
Don't you want somebody to meet you, give you the benefit of the doubt, and then let there be enough conversation so that some layers of you can be discovered? Right? All of us are like that. And so first, treat them like a whole human being. Second, um, uh, so let's, let's put it up there. This, uh, there's a verse I want to share with you, right? Practice being, practice being a jar of clay. That's the second one. If you're a Christian, you're a jar of clay. So here's how it's put. 2 Corinthians 4, this is how the Apostle Paul puts it. We have this treasure that is the gospel, that is Christ himself, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You get it? We're not going to fix them. Jesus didn't, you know, like somebody in church didn't fix you. Jesus redeemed you and me, right? But so when we go out, we're, we're clay. You know, clay is like common, weak material. But there's a treasure inside of us. It's Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way. That's being normal. We have afflictions in every normal way, but not crushed. We are perplexed. Sometimes are you perplexed? I am. Because we're human but not driven to despair because we have Christ. Persecuted, I don't know if we're persecuted. Back then they were persecuted. Sometimes maybe you feel that way. But not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, in us, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So here's what I mean. Remember that you and I are jars of clay. And here is the takeaway that I want, what I want you to put. How do you remember that? When you treat a person, um, try not to fix them or solve everything. Just be you. <laughs> be a real person. Offer them real fellowship through vulnerability. <laughs> because, you know, not be like a steel jar. <laughs> Not an impregnable, like, perfect jar that can never be broken, but a clay jar. Clay can crack. Clay is broken. Clay isn't, doesn't look like much on the outside, but actually on the inside, in, in, the, in the mixture, mixed in and dealing with all the clay, is Christ. That's our real treasure. And when you meet a person and you start talking about you could share with them, here's the thing that I'm struggling with that's hard for me. But they can feel this thing. That you're like, wow, you're really being real. I thought Christians were all just a bunch of phony people that just hate people like me. <laughs> and you would actually dare to share with me your weakness? And they could begin to feel this interesting and odd tension. That people who are vulnerable but yet have a treasure underneath that's their real strength, that's Weird, but weird in a very beautiful and compelling way. That's, that's Christianity. That's real Christianity. That's real fellowship. That's, if you ask me, without even, even mentioning the name of Jesus, if they just know you're a Christian or you go to church, 
they'll begin to feel that you're an odd person, kind of strangely compelling person, because you dare to actually share with me your weakness, your vulnerability, but I could feel there's something else there. Something you don't... So this is, this is the weird thing. Authentic fellowship. And it's not, by the way, it's not, it's not surprising that in this passage it happens over a table. You know, it takes a little bit of time, a meal, coffee, a beer, yes. You know, in our church we drink beer, I drink beer. It's a great way to hang out with non-Christians, right? Um, of course, you know, I, 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 there are some people who have alcohol issues, and so you've got to be careful. Right? We don't want to cause stumbling. So we don't use our freedom that way. But fellowship. So first, treat a person as a whole human being. Second, remember that we are jars of clay with a treasure inside. And let them see that treasure through the weakness. Through the weakness. And third, all right, offer to pray for them and mean it. Offer to pray for them and mean it. Now, um, I want to just offer, you know, our culture believes that religion is privacy. There's a wall of privacy you can't do. But let me just let you in on something here. I've, I've practiced this many, many times, and I actually learned it from another pastor. You know, he, he, he's a very effective evangelist. You know how he does it? He just goes, hey, can I pray for you? Almost always the answer is yes. It's really true. The person could be like a hardened atheist or whatever, but if you say, can I pray for you, and you actually mean it, you know what? Oh, man, 90-plus percent of the time, the answer will be yes. And then my suggestion is, don't go, well, I'll pray for you, and then go do it at home. Actually pray for them. They'll say, like, and they say, can I pray for you? And they're like, they'll say yes. And you might ask, well, how could I pray for you? And then... If they really believe you, they might actually tell you. Or maybe you're, you know, hanging out, and they tell you, you know, since you share what's hurting inside your life, they'll share what's hurting inside their life. And then after that, then you could say, can I pray for you? And you actually know what to pray for. And then, then they'll say, can I pray for you right now? They'll say, oh, okay. I actually did this with a, um, there's a, a woman that I knew from ninth grade. She found me on Facebook. It was like, this girl used to sit behind me in, in German class in ninth grade. And we were friends back then, right? And so she, I was like, wow, right? And, um, and so, you know, so she said, let's have coffee. You know, I, I don't usually have one-on-one coffees with, uh, uh, with a woman. So I asked my wife's permission so she knows. And so, so we caught up a couple hours. Well, how'd your life turn out? So she gave me like, you know, a rundown of like how her life turned out. I did that. And then at the end I asked, can I pray for you? She's actually going through a really painful divorce. And she said yes. She's not a Christian. Um, her dad is actually, used to grow up in the Catholic Church, very anti-Catholic, and, and uh, she kind of has that spirit of like very suspicious of all kind of institutional religion. Many, you know lots of people like that, right? She's in that way, she's very common in our, in our culture. So I asked, can I pray for you? And she said yes. I prayed for her husband and for her children and for all that she's going through, which is really painful. And she just started crying in the middle of the prayer. 
Uh, it wasn't because I was a pastor, guys. <laughs> it's not because I'm a pastor and I got like great tricks. <laughs> There's no great tricks. I'm just offering her authentic fellowship, right? Being a friend. And, you know, we do this, we do this, we practice this in our small groups. We call it Gospel Life Family. You know, you practice Gospel Life Fellowship inside Gospel Life Family. That's what we do. GLFs practice GLF, <laughs> right? And how about if we, well, we don't have to get preachy. Just offer that to the sinners. And remember that you and I are the worst kind of sinners, the Pharisee sinners. And so let's get off our Pharisee perch. Remember that we are, that we are, you know, that we're jars of clay and that they're human and we're clay meeting clay and offer them prayer. You know, for a lot of your friends and neighbors, if they grew up in a home that was secular or maybe Buddhist, they may have literally never been prayed for. Think about that. Just think about that for a moment. <laughs> think about that for a moment. Nobody's ever prayed for them and really meant it. <laughs> and when you take them to the Lord, you know what you're doing? You just take them to the one that Jesus says, I am the great physician. So stop thinking. He's like, I came for the sick, not those who are well. <laughs> He's the great physician. And we remember that he was our great doctor. And when you take them to the great doctor, there'll be a covenantal encounter. Covenantal means three, there's three persons in that encounter. There's you, your friend, or your neighbor, your coworker, whoever it is that you're fellowshipping with, and the Lord. Three-person encounter, covenantal. And they'll walk away. And it was really interesting, this old, this old friend of mine from high school, um, about four weeks later, she texted me and said, hey, want to have coffee again? And this time I brought my wife. But then she texted me and said, want to have coffee again? And then you know what she said again? Then, then she sent me another text. She said, your prayer was amazing. I'm still thinking about it. I was like, wow. So, um, it, again, it's not because I'm a pastor and I'm so good at this thing. You're, many of you are just as good, if not better than me. I already know that. I've listened to you pray in our GLFs and our small groups, what you would offer your brother and sister, may we offer our friends, the sinners. <laughs> and some of them will become the Rosaria Butterfields and then they get saved. I mean, it's literally happened in this church. It's not like, it's not a theory, it's happened. It happens and it will keep happening. Now let's close with a meditation about the Lord's Supper. In our church once a month, we invite you to the table of the Lord. Jesus, it's a meal. And you know, he, he's saying he's offering us fellowship. Come fellowship with me. And I want to ask you this question. In your life, have you ever had a time when you felt like you were on the outside and not welcomed in? You know, you were at school, but those cool kids over there you can never hang out with them. <laughs> or you're at work, and but the, that click over there, they're the ones that make all the cool decisions, and you, you're not worthy of being around with them. Or you just feel it all the time. I'm just not much. Nobody thinks I'm all that. So I'm always on the outside. I'm not welcomed. 
You feel welcomed or excluded? Because that's what, you know, in this text, all the people who are sinners and traitors, that's what, they're unwelcome. They're excluded. They're on the outside of, of, the, of the fellowship of God's people. That, but have you ever felt this way? Outside, excluded, not seen. Maybe they didn't even see 